Let me just uh, say just what an honor it is to, to be with y'all this morning uh, in worship. Uh, this is a, something I've been looking forward to for uh, quite a while. And uh, uh, I think the world of, of your church, uh, from the very time that we, we first moved to Breckenridge County, uh, got to know many of your staff members and, and uh, church members and stuff as, a, as serving then as a pastor as a sister church. Uh, even met Andrew early on, and uh, uh, now you've made him pastor, he was youth pastor then. And uh, boy, you all must have been desperate, I tell you. It's, <laughs> it is just, no, I, I do think the world of your church, and, and church, don't underestimate the ministry you have, even to people beyond uh, the borders of Breckenridge County. Uh, I really just think the world of you all, and I think the world uh, of Andrew, um, a little bit of Matt, he's okay. Um, <laughs> And the rest of your staff and elders and everyone. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, camp this week. Uh, but students, I like to call shotgun on the uh, water balloon on Matt first, right? I got shotgun. That, that's something I want to do first. So uh, uh, there is a general rule of thumb that I think we, we, we pastors share with one another when it comes to guest speakers. And that is that, that whoever is your guest speaker, they have to do two things. Number one, they have to speak in slow monotone like they're... Ben Stein's trying to sell you clear eyes, okay? <laughs> the other thing is they have to go over their allotted time. Um, the reason that is, you're scared now, the reason that is is because you need to know you could always have it worse. <laughs> That's why I like to take my wife over to the uh, Walmart Superstore in west side of Frankfurt late at night so she knows she could always have it worse always be worse. It could be better. We already knew that, but it, it could always be worse. So um, I'm on Eastern Standard Time, so I'm already late, gone over time, so uh, we'll just keep going, all right? So, <laughs> all right, well, um, let's go ahead and, and hop into our text. Uh, so again, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the end of this uh, chapter. Uh, what an eventful chapter this is. My understanding, y'all were in Acts chapter 1 last week. And we want to continue our study of uh, Luke's book, the book of Acts to the Apostles. So, if you will, if nothing else, for the sake of my own nerves, if you will stand with me out of reverence for, for God's word, we want to read starting in verse 42 and go to the end of the chapter. Luke writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, belongings, and, dis and distributing the, the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, I ask that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word this morning, that you would open our minds, that we would understand it. We believe it is true without error and given by your inspiration, and it is written with clarity for our understanding. May you be so kind to give us that. We open our eyes that we would see your glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, risen from the dead, seated upon his throne. May you open our ears that we would hear and that we would heed your word. May you open our mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel, begin in our own lives, and to one another in love, and to the world around us. 
our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, strangers. For they too need to know the good news of the good news. May you open our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. That we will be transformed by the gospel because we encountered your son. May you be so kind to us this morning. May we be the sort of church as you've called us to be. For your kingdom and your glory. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you're aware of this, but shortly after his second term was up, former President George W. Bush took on painting, of all things. He took that on after he read a biography of the late Winston Churchill, who throughout much of his adult life painted. It, it was a way that he dealt with the stress of public life, and particularly after his retirement from Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill really took on a life of painting. So W. thought he'd try it. He, he, he admitted that, uh, that he, he, he didn't know anything about painting, and uh, he didn't really care about painting for most of his life, but it was something new he wanted to try now that public life was largely behind him. And so he, he hired a few uh, professional art instructors to come help him out, and one of them asked him a rather striking question. He said, W, or I'm sure it was President W, but W, what is it that you want to get out of painting. Why is it that you're wanting to paint? What is it you want to learn? Well, W's answer was rather a simple, but I think a profound one. He, he wanted to learn what to do with colors. He wanted to know how to paint with colors. What W had done is he had, he had gone to uh, the, the, the store nearby, and he had bought every painting there was. Right, everyone, I'm sure it was Hobby Lobby or, or Michael's if my wife had anything to do with it. And he went and he bought every color in the aisle and he brought it back to his studio and, and he didn't know what to do with them. He still, with all those colors, couldn't get the right color for the portraits he was trying to paint. So the instructor, right from the beginning, had good advice for the former president. He said, what you need to do is you need to get rid of all these colors you've bought. That was a waste of time, waste of money. And what you need to do, if you want to learn the, using the art of color, you need to stick to four colors. From these four colors, you can make any color in the spectrum. Those colors are red, blue, yellow, and white. From those four colors, from those four ingredients... You can paint virtually anything in any color. It's amazing, isn't it, that with the right ingredients, with the right colors, you can paint a masterpiece. But first, you have to start with the right ones. The local church really isn't much different. We as churches oftentimes get distracted by all the options available to us. If only our budget is large enough, if only we're in the right community, or, or if we have this or that, if the church will vote for it even. In the midst, what we're missing is the very basic understanding of what it means to be a church. If we get the foundation right, everything else will come with it. So I want to share with you, if we will, four colors of the local church, four key ingredients that the church must have in order for God to do great and mighty things. And that first is simply the gospel. It is the gospel. Now remember that every text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I would repeat that. I probably wouldn't get it right the second time. 
Right? In other words, that, that, that every passage of Scripture you have has within it a certain context that without that context, we, we won't understand the meaning of that text. And, and what we read here is really no different. You all looked at Acts chapter 1 last week. There, uh, Christ ascends in, into heaven, and he gives those final instructions to his, his disciples after his resurrection. But now in chapter 2, what we have is after Christ ascends, the Spirit of God descends. And as he descends, he comes upon all of those who had waited for this very moment uh, under Christ's leadership, and they received the Holy Spirit. And through that miraculous work, the church is planted, and is planted first and foremost because Peter, the guy who always had a foot in his mouth, finally took it out, stood up before the crowd, and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. In fact, we know in fact that it is the gospel because if you look at verses 36 to 38, his message is pretty simple. In this first sermon, he calls on the first hearers to believe the gospel and to repent of their sins in light of that gospel. That is still the message we have today. And as a result of that message, we find this church being planted there in Jerusalem. In fact, you see it there in verse 41, the, the results of that. Says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about, uh, about 3,000 souls. So what you have then is the, the, the story of this first church begins with the proclamation and the belief in the gospel. And that is the context of the snapshot we have here of this first church. Everyone at this time was a new believer. Everyone had just come to Christ for the very first time. And what laid their church, the very foundation of this local congregation, was nothing more, but certainly nothing less than the gospel of Jesus. You see, we need to understand that without that good news, without the belief in Jesus' death and resurrection upon the cross, there is no church. You can call yourself whatever you want, a gathering of, of like-minded people from Breckeridge County, I'm sorry, Breck County, but, but whatever you may call yourself, you cannot call yourself in the biblical sense a church. You see, there is therefore no greater priority than the gospel of Christ for the local church. Unless it lies at the center of everything you are and everything you do and everything you believe in and everything that empowers you and your goal as a local church, your eyes are on the wrong thing. The gospel must shape every sermon. The gospel must shape every song. The gospel must shape every lesson. The gospel must shape every small group. The gospel must shape every outreach. The gospel must shape every worship service. The gospel must shape every conversation, every exhortation, every encouragement, every moment of every day of your life and the life of this local church. You will not outgrow the gospel. And therefore, do not take the gospel for granted. Too often we assume, well, we all believe the same thing. Let's graduate to something a little better. But no, there isn't anything better than that. Whether you've never received the good news of Jesus, and I beg of, to, of you to do that this morning, or whether you've been a believer and a member of this church longer than I've been alive, you will never outgrow the gospel. It is the gospel that will save you. It is the gospel that will sustain you. It is the gospel that will sanctify you. And it is the gospel one day that will allow us to be with Jesus for eternity. 
So if the gospel is central to the local church, then embracing the gospel must be essential for every believer. Which means that I think that one of the most underappreciated doctrines of Scripture is the doctrine of conversion. It is the doctrine of conversion. See, we Baptists, in theory, already believe this. It's in, it's in our Baptist faith and message, and, and I'm sure it's in your constitution like it is ours. All we did was copy and paste the Baptist faith and message, put it in our constitution. But it's in there nonetheless. And that is that we believe in what's called regenerate church membership. Because we believe that we, we baptize only those who's, who've made a profession of faith, they believe in Christ then by definition, only those who are truly regenerated, who truly believe in Jesus, they alone are to be members of the local church. Why? Because we believe that those whom God saves, God transforms. You see, the gospel is not choosing the right team or, or picking your favorite color or whatever ever we, we may think of it, but rather the gospel is a radical transformation where we can look back and say, that person I used to be, I no longer recognize because Jesus has me now. We underestimate the essential priority of conversion because when the gospel gets a hold of you, you, you recognize someone new in the mirror. What is it that John Newton said? John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who, who prior to his conversion was a slave trader. He would travel and, and, and to Africa and get slaves and, and sell them. And he, then, then God got a hold of him and he fought for abolition. Eventually it happened with his nephew, William Wilberforce. But what is it that he used to say? That something like, I may not be what I used to be, or, I, I, or rather, I may not be who I ought to be. I may not be who I should be. I may not be who I could be, but praise the Lord. I am not what I once was. And when the gospel shapes the church, it is, it is populated by people who are not what they once were. So therefore, I beg of you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Can you honestly look back on your life and look at your life right now and honestly say and conclude that Jesus owns me, Jesus has me, that the love of the world in my heart is on the decline, that holiness is my priority, that God's glory is my, my focus, and that the gospel is what sustains me every day of my life. Keep your eyes ever on Jesus and let his saving gospel, his sustaining, transforming gospel be at the center of everything you are as a husband, a father, a mother, a brother, a wife, a student, a child, and a church. But isn't just the gospel that we find here in Acts chapter 2, here Peter preaches the gospel, you'll notice the second thing that is emphasized beginning in verse 40 and 42 is that of sound teaching. Sound teaching. You see, it's clearly laid out for us there at the beginning of verse 42. Notice what this church is doing. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. Now, think about it just for a minute. You read a passage like that. Maybe you read it like, like I do. And, and, and I think, wouldn't it be awesome to be there? To be a fly on the wall. To sit in the back pew with all the other Baptists and just, just listen to what it is Peter has to say. Wouldn't you like to hear some of those stories? Wouldn't you like to hear what John, when he corrects everything Peter gets wrong, wouldn't you like to be there for a moment like that? Oh, what stories they would tell. What things they had gleaned from the Savior himself. Wouldn't you love to be there? Well, I would. But then again, 
We, we have that, don't we? God's word is nothing less than the very testimony of the apostles and the prophets. And if that's the case, then why do we take it for granted? If our hearts long to sit under the teaching of Peter and Paul and John and even Jesus' own brothers, then why don't we sit at the teaching of Peter and Paul and John and the brothers of Christ? We have it right here in our possession. You see, unless the local church and every member of the local church take God's word and God's truth seriously, then that church will crumble and fall. You see, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Thus, it carries with it God's authority and God's will, which means our response to God's word and God's will must be that of submission. Because God is the one who possesses sole authority over our lives. In fact, at the core of our struggle with sin, at the core of our fights within the church, is this very issue of authority. We, we want to hold on as tightly as we can to whatever authority we possess in our own hearts, whether it be our desires or our preferences or whatever it might be. We want to hold on to it, and thus we war against other people, including other fellow believers in the local church, rather than simply submit to the authority of the apostles and the prophets' teachings. Sound teaching is, is, is vital to the health of the local church. When we rationalize rebellion or redefine what disobedience is, we're ultimately claiming that it isn't God who's in control, but me. And when the members of the local church have such a loose mentality with God and his revelation, then everything imaginable is up for grabs. So despite what might be trendy today, God does not care about what you and I think about anything. Amen. If your prayer life is nothing more than God, let me, let me feel you in with what's really happening here, you, you, you stop, okay? All right? I, I, I can offer you better prayers, okay? Like, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You should probably start with that one. But what a relief that is. God doesn't care about your opinion. He cares about your obedience. He cares about your worship. What a relief that is to each of us. Can, can I show you two ways that is a relief? It's very simply and very quickly. First of all, pleasing God is better than pleasing man. It really is that simple. If we would simply submit ourselves to the authority of God by devoting ourselves to the word and the will of God, then we won't have to keep track of every single trendy thing in American evangelicalism. I used to work at a Christian bookstore. That Christian bookstore ain't around anymore. It wasn't life for you. I, they, they were cool folk. I used to work at family in both Florence and, and, and Louisville. Um, but uh, I know it's Louisville. It's a joke. It's my way of making fun of those who don't know how to pronounce words. But uh, uh, I used to work at a Christian bookstore. And let me tell you, you can track that stuff, and you can track all kinds of trend, and none of it's any good if you, if you like the gospel and sound teaching. You get this wrong. What, what good is, is stuff? What good is any of that? What a relief that is. We've got a simple job. Obey and worship Jesus. I mean, that, that's about as clear as, as, as simple as, as it can get. But what a relief that is. Pleasing God is better. Because let me be clear. that The day will come when you will no longer be able to please men because you will be dead. And a lot of good that's going to do you. God has called us to please him. And let me, let me be honest with you. I, I, I'm a pastor. Nobody likes me. 
to add to that, uh, just, just because I'm a glutton for punishment, I, I like to referee soccer on the side. It's just because I don't get criticized enough as a minister. So as I go and I do that. And let me just assure you, you can't please not just everybody, you can't please nobody. Any men married here know what I'm talking about. That's a joke. It's a joke. It's not men. It's not. It's, it's, uh, no, I'm just kidding. You, you can't please anybody in this world. But if we are obedient to God and make our lives one of worship, you can please one who's greater than men and women of this world. You can please the one who created us. But there's another reason why uh, this, this is important for us to grasp. We'll avoid the common errors of a local church. And those errors are many. Can I highlight two errors for you? One is an over-attachment to being trendy. Another one is being too entrenched with tradition. If we are rooted in the gospel and sound teaching, we'll avoid trendiness and traditionalism. Let's talk about trendy just very briefly. I don't even know what time it is. It's like 4 o'clock Eastern, so we're, we're good. What happens with Trinity? Yes, this is a problem among more liberal mainline churches, but this is a problem within conservative churches. Well-intentioned, many conservative evangelicals has bought the lie that keeping up with the culture and keeping up with the megachurches is the key to health. But trend does very little to help the single mother. It is very little to help the lonely student. It is very little to help the, 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 the wounded minister. It is very little to help people in the, I was going to say pew. What are these? Chairs? I don't know. I, uh, I just can't believe y'all take away them pews. I tell you. Speaking of that, we'll get to tradition here in a minute. The issue with trendiness is that it makes little of Jesus and too much of men. If your concern here is saying that unless we start keeping up, we'll fall apart, I think you're on the wrong track. But tradition is equally dangerous. There are just as many, many well-intentioned, conservative evangelicals who are obsessed with tradition. And that is equally dangerous. So often they may be well-intentioned, personal preferences of church traditions push out the fidelity to Scripture in favor of the will of men. I'm not anti-tradition, I'm not anti-trend, but if they get in the way of making much of Jesus, we need to repent and again believe the gospel. How many fights are fought over things that do not belong in the kingdom of God? See, the key to navigating faithfulness without falling for either error is saturating ourselves and therefore to saturate the church with the gospel of Jesus and his word. And then we will know his will. There's a third thing I see in this text I think worth highlighting. It's also there in verse 42. We saw the gospel. We, we've seen sound teaching, sound teaching. The third key ingredient of the local church is worship. It's worship. Again, you, you see it there. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think John Piper is right when he, he writes, quote, Missions is not the ultimate go of the local church. Worship is. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Isn't that your goal, Cor? Isn't your goal that every person and every soul of Breckenridge County is, is saved, therefore missions has been fully replaced with worship? Isn't that your goal? If that's not your goal in this life, then you're not dreaming big enough of what God can do in your community. Worship is the central work of the church. You, you see it here in verse 42. They've got the sound teaching, but then they have the, the breaking of bread in the prayers. It's clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. And we'll see here with the emphasis on the prayers, this is in the context of the local church. What you're not having is, is, is the youth ministry showing up at uh, Pizza Hut here in Hardensburg. I almost said Miguel's because you always have to say Miguel's. But you show the Pizza Hut here and they, they're having pizza and coke. We'll, we'll call that communion. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is in the context of worship, people are focusing on the, the work of Jesus in their lives and the work of Jesus as he continues the work in the church. We do that in, in two ordinances that's mentioned here in verses 41 and 42. We see baptism, verse 41, that all who believed were baptized. That's a testimony of God's grace in the life of the church, but then the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of God's grace in the life of the church. And that is a moment of worship. When you are confronted with God's grace, the response, and the only right response, is to worship. Worship is a central part of the local church. Thus, we can't isolate breaking the bread and the prayers from this of worship. This means that the content and the focus of worship is vital to the local church and its health. So thus let the songs we sing reflect the truth of the gospel. Let the posture of our hearts be humbled and directed toward the Holy One. Let the parts of the worship be centered on our hope of salvation. May we think much of Jesus. May we celebrate our unity in Jesus. And may we obey the revealed will of God. If you will skip down to verse 46 for me, I want you to see how often they worshiped. Day by day they were together. I hope Andrew don't bring that up in the next business meeting. Might get voted down. Can we at least do this? Can we at least see that worship isn't something you do at 9.15 on a Sunday morning? Worship is something you live in. You see, Sunday morning worship should not be a pick-me-up or a duty. But rather, it should be the climax of a week that has been engaged in worship. You see, worship begins on Monday for us. And every day, we are living a life of worship in obedience to God's will and word. And we are living a life of worship in the words we use and the conversations we have and the people we serve and love and the things we do and the places we go. We live a life so saturated with the gospel. It is a life lived in worship so that by Sunday, it's a climax of that. We join with one another, those who've been doing the same thing as us. You see, when we diminish worship to something that is a duty rather than a delight, then worship gets boring because we think worship was about us to begin with. It was never about you. But make your life one of worship where day by day you'll meet in the temple. Day by day you'll meet each other in Hardensburg. Day by day you will sing to the glory of God with a humble and contrite heart. 
Let me add the fourth one. I really have no idea what time we're, we're supposed to get out. I, I, I lost track. Fourth and last one. We had the gospel, sound teaching, and worship. The last one is mission. Mission. You see it there beginning of verse 43. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, what you have here in these verses is the outworking of what we saw in the sermon response to the sermon of Peter and the foundation laid at the church. So when we are serious about Jesus and his gospel, when we are rooted in the sound teaching of God's revealed word and will, and when we worship Christ in spirit and in truth, we will be compelled to go. To go. Yes, worship is the central work of the church, but because worship doesn't exist, missions exist. Missions exist. You see there in verse 43 that, that they, these works of the apostles are not magic tricks. They are works of God for the purpose of reaching the nations. In verses 44 to 46, they, they, they share the, the, the blessings God has given them, not so they can get a pat on the back at the next Sunday school meeting so that they can reach budget, but rather because there were needs in their community and God had given them everything in Christ. How can we not give the world everything that we have? It's missions. In verse 47, due to the hearts of joy, what is it that happens is that God blesses them immensely. This entire passage here from 43 to 47 is all about mission, which means that a stagnant church is a church waiting to die. A church that wants to hold on to its traditions. A church that wants to hold on to its way of doing things. And if we have to die trying, we'll die. We're okay with that. This church isn't content with death because they understand that what the Jerusalem needs isn't the temple anymore. Christ is the, is the fulfillment of the temple. What the church needs, or what Jerusalem needs, is a vibrant church that loves them enough to lead them to worship the Savior by the means of the gospel. They are on mission. They are on mission. And let us be clear. It is not the primary work of the church to do the mission. It is the primary work of its members to be on mission. This is something I found is, is, is going to Frankfurt and stuff and, and years of ministry and, and just growing up in church. Uh, we were at church growing up every time the doors were open, sometime when they weren't open because my daddy had the key. And, and one of the things I've noticed is in order to do evangelism uh, at arm's length, we let the church do it for us. So the church spends gobs of money on outreach programs and everything else, all of which are fine and dandy. We do them too. But what we don't want to do is for me to do the evangelism. So what we've done at East Frankfurt is we, we've switched it. It says, how can the church help you reach Frankfurt for Christ? It's a switch of mentality because I'm guilty of the same thing. If, if I just reshare everything on Facebook, I've done my evangelism for our big outreach event. And all that is good and dandy. I do it too. But don't forget that God has called you to people in this community that no one else in this church can reach. What are you doing about it right now? 
Together, this church can reach this entire community if we are obedient to Christ and the mission that he has called us to be. Can I share with you the reality of Breckenridge County? This is the thing I did in my first six weeks in, in Frankfurt. Frankfurt is 84% lost. Can I share with you what the statistics are here in Breckenridge County? You have a population of just over 20,000 people right here in this county. According to the latest statistics and the latest census report, over 52% of this county claims to be adherents of some religion. You call them up and say, hey, uh, do you believe in God or something? Yeah, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Mormon, or check that box. Whatever box they check, over half of this county is an adherent to some faith or tradition. But with that said, only 31% are actual members of a local church or congregation or something like that. Only 31%. Yet if you look even closer to the numbers, what you'll find that only about 13.5% of this county is in worship on any given Sunday. That means about 87% of this county is your mission field. What are we going to do about that, Corey? What are you doing about it right now? You see, if you've been worshiping the way God in Christ has called us to worship because God in Christ has transformed your heart, you'd already be living on mission. And if you're not living on mission, what part of your life do you need to repent of this morning? The work is great. The harvest is plentiful. But Corinth, will you be its workers? You know, W wrote a book called Portraits of Courage. And basically, as he was painting all of these paintings, he, he painted a, a lot of people he had met during his presidency. Some, some celebrities, yes, and, and, but many of them were, were, were world leaders. And though the most famous one is probably the one of Jay Leno. He brought at the end of Jay Leno's, I think, his second tenure with The Tonight Show. And, and you know, he, he presented him as a former president, a gift to Jay Leno, probably the most famous. But he's done a bunch of others uh, of world leaders and, and whatnot. And these are just simple gifts from the former president to other people uh, that he paints. But he was asked to do a book, and he thought, I don't want to do a book with people that everyone knows their story and recognizes their faces. What I want to do is I want to do a book of art about people that no one has met before, but their stories need to be told. And so W. wrote the book, his book of art, called Portraits of Courage, where he highlights the, the portraits he's painted of wounded veterans. And on each page or every other page is, is the portrait he paints of this person that you and I would never recognize. Yet right next to that portrait that W. painted is the story and how he met him or her and, and what happened to them in Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere else and, and how his work with wounded veterans continues to stay. It's a fascinating book. I recommend it to you. I read it this week. But his introduction is what I find so fascinating. There, I'd like to read it to you if that's okay. If it's not okay, I'm going to do it anyways. He said, I told Laura and our artist friend Pam Nelson that I might like to take up painting. They were surprised. I had been an art agnostic all my life. Laura said, you ought to try it. Of course, kind of wonder how she actually meant that, right? I mean, sure, honey, sure. Stay in your man cave. Um, if she if she seemed uh, like she was slightly skeptical, Pam suggested I hire her friend Gail Norfleet 
a notable and talented Dallas artist, as my instructor. So several days later, Gail came over to the house and asked me what my objectives were. He said this, Gail, there's a Rembrandt trapped in this body. It is your job to liberate him. Dear Corinth, there is a Rembrandt trapped in this body of believers. Amen. By the grace of God and for the glory of God, will you let them out? There's too much work to be done. May we make much of Jesus in his saving gospel. May we submit to the authority of God's word and God's will. May we worship Christ in spirit and in truth. And may we die serving Jesus in the mission field. So I don't know what your story is this morning. Where it is that the Spirit of God may be convicting you this morning. But if you've never received the hope of Christ, I beg of you this morning to do that. Do not leave here until you've come and surrendered your very all to Jesus. Maybe you're here because you didn't have anything else to do on a rainy Sunday morning. And you've just been going through the motions of your Christianity. Will you too not repent? And learn to worship Christ in spirit and the truth. And go on mission for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here. And you don't know what God wants you to do with your life. And you've just been sitting around wondering what it is God wants with you. I'll tell you what it is. To believe the gospel. To submit to his teaching. To worship in spirit and truth. And to go. And to not stop going. There's a Rembrandt here. You let God bring him out.